Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. Today, we're talking to Kate Boyle. Kate is joining us from the mountains of Idaho, just on the other side of the Grand Tetons in Victor, Idaho. And what's so cool about Kate's story is her intro to bikepacking. We're going to be talking a lot about bikepacking, bike racing, and backcountry adventure bikepacking specifically and how she's working really hard with another upcoming guest, Kurt Refsnyder, uh, on bikepackingroots.org. They are all about helping lower the barrier to get into bikepacking because, you know, there's it's a lot of money. It's, it's the bike can be very expensive, the gear, but once you have it, it lasts a really long time, so getting into it is the hardest part. And another thing is, is you know, route finding and, and knowing where to go and what to try. They're going to start planning, her and Kurt are actually planning a few free bikepacking adventures for anybody to join, like a couple days, a lot like my trips that are paddle trips, where you do a weekend, it's free, anybody can show up, uh, you know, some food's included, you bring a little bit, if you don't have gear, we've got extra. They are doing that for bikepacking, more details to come, but follow along uh, on her Instagram to learn more when those are happening. Really cool, and I love that. I love when folks who are experts, who are so accomplished like Kate, who have won tons of races, use their platform, use their knowledge to help others get into the sport. That's what this show is all about. So them understanding that, it's a really cool conversation about shaping the sport, shaping the culture around the sport. And We're going to hear how Kate got into it, one, like I said, but also how her world, not just bikepacking, but everything, almost came to a crashing end, no pun intended, a vehicle accident she was in not that long ago, and what life has been like afterwards. You know, a lot of our shows have featured very stark life changes. Sometimes that is the reason people get into the adventure sport that leads to the adventure that we talk about on the show. Other times, it's the injury itself that is the subject or what life is like afterwards. So uh, Kate's going to tell us, you know, how pre-rec Kate and post-rec Kate are different, what she's learned and what kind of encouragement you can take with you in your journey. Really fascinating story. I loved this conversation. And you can follow Kate at Kate, K-A-I-T dot Boyle on Instagram. Boyle is B-O-Y-L-E. Or go to bikepackingroots.com or backcountry-mtb.com. As well as her own website, I-M-K-A-I-T dot com. I'm Kate dot com. All right, let's go ahead and dive in. Kate Boyle, welcome to the show. Hey, Mason and everyone. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so so I always ask this first, and I actually don't know the answer here. Where are you coming from today? And <laughs> I know it's darker than here, but and where's home for you if that's not home? Yeah, well, I'm actually at home right now, which feels amazing because I have not spent very much time here in the last three months. And that is Victor, Idaho, which is on the west side of the Teton. So if you've heard of Jackson Hole, Wyoming, that's about a half an hour right over Teton Pass to the east. What brought you there? Or have you, did you grow up there? <laughs> well, that's kind of part of this bigger adventure story. I worked for Knowles, which is known as the National Outdoor Leadership School for about 10 or 12 years. And I mean, 2000. 10, I started coming up to the Teton Valley to work in their river whitewater rafting program and also in their winter program. And so those courses were based out of Driggs, which is just eight miles north of Victor. And I'd come up here in the winter and the summer. Meanwhile, I was based in Prescott, Arizona, where I was working for Prescott College, teaching adventure education. And eventually, around when I quit my job in Prescott, my boyfriend was kind of nomadic working for Knowles, mostly in the Idaho, Utah area. And we both worked here and I wanted to move to the mountains. I already had community here. Um, and so yeah, I moved up here in the summer of 2018, planning on kind of trying that out and then had a car accident here, which led to being very rooted here. And now five years later, like this is very much home. We're trying to build a house. <laughs> trying that'll be its own adventure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. I've never, I've never done that, but uh, I hear, I hear there's a lot that goes into it. 
Okay, so I, I want to unpack a few things there. So, you know, <laughs> you left, you got to, to that area, fell in love with it, put some roots down, but were you into bikepacking by the time you were an environmental educator? Did you discover bikepacking once you were educating? So I started working for Outward Bound in 2006 as a backpacking, mountaineering, rock climbing instructor. And that was while I was still in college. And then after college, I worked for a number of years. And it wasn't until, I think, 2012, nope, sorry, 2010, that I got on a mountain bike for the first time. And that was because I broke my ankle rock climbing, as so many climbers do. And the bike was the first thing I could do outside. And that ankle surgery took, like, it was a very long time until I'd be climbing. And so while I was out riding my bike, I was like, wow, you can go a lot farther on a bike than on foot. (laughs) And I learned about the Tour Divide and the Great Divide mountain bike route. Kurt Rustneider was teaching at Prescott College at the time, and he had like just moved there. And so it was kind of this like local legend in Prescott because he had won the Tour Divide and he was a professional cyclist. And so I decided to ride the Great Divide route with my boyfriend at the time. And so I went and rode the Coke Valley Trail with just a backpack, which I don't recommend. Um, and then the next spring, I rode the Great Divide route from south to north on my single speed. And that's how I got into bike. Okay. <laughs> and that was 2012. So at that point, I've been riding for about two years. Wow. I ended up doing the Tour Divide the following year, 2013. Awesome. And rocked my world. <laughs> yeah, totally. Same. I just remember, like, I didn't race it. I wanted to see every inch of it. So I rode just during the day, but it was June. So the days were really long. And I had to be at work to work an outdoor ride course in July. And so I had a month. And so I was like, cool, I'm going to ride 100 miles a day. And took a day or two off. And just remember getting to the Canadian border and being like, wow. I just saw the entire country under my own power in a month. Like that is crazy. Or not the entire country, but you know, like the length. And on a, on a fairly difficult, you know, difficult way. Yeah, totally. Not not the most direct path you could have taken. Not the most direct. <laughs> wow. So you know, I, I'd say too. So you made a great point. You discovered cycling after climbing. That's one thing I've probably kept me personally away from climb. Like really loving climbing is is just being stuck to something for so long. And when you're on the bike, you're just used to going past things at a, at a pretty decent clip. You're, it's still slow enough that you can appreciate it like hiking or backpacking, but not so slow that you're stagnant, but not so fast like in a car and you're, that you're separated from it in a way. It's that perfect medium. And I think I think a lot of people realize, wow, this is this feels better on my joints. This is, oh yeah, I can carry a whole jar of peanut butter. I don't have to like drill <laughs> holes in my toothbrush to save weight. Um, there's all these benefits. I'm, I'm a huge advocate. And then kayaking, I've, I've, which I've gotten into is even more so. You can just throw a, throw anything, throw entire bottles of wine and your kayak, it doesn't matter. So it's totally, <laughs> it's kind of crazy. Yeah. And I think a career in all these different adventure sports that I was teaching, Professionally, I found the bike to just be this perfect hybrid of the pace that you can travel through a landscape. Like it's so digestible, but you can also see change. And then also that simplicity of like, it just, and it's similar to backpacking in this way where like you actually, you don't need a climbing partner or a ski partner. You don't need all the gear that goes into whitewater trips or the shuttle. Like you can just go ride from your house or you can just pack up pretty quickly and go for a trip. And that's, I think what has continued. That's ultimately, I think what led me to kind of a complete career shift to being somehow a like professional bike packer and backcountry mountain biker was just that becoming such a passion. And I still love to ski and travel down rivers because you get to go places that you don't on a bike, but yeah, the bike is just pretty incredible way to experience wild places and just other cultures. Oh, absolutely. If you want to stop, you just stop. Like it, that, it's that easy. You don't, yeah, you know, you, totally. When I, when I kind of got off the bike, yeah. like in a car, you're like, oh, I need to pull off or, you know, get off, you know, there's a little more logistics. You know, I've got, I got into car camping after bike pack, like, you know, bike packing through college. And I'm like, dang, this thing is a lot harder to hide than a bike, you know, bike I can just put right there in the woods 
the truck. I just can't hide it anywhere. You know, it's it, that's one of the challenges. And so I'd get that, you know, the 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 dreaded knock in the middle of the night way more often in the oh, car. Yeah. But that's another benefit. I, I love this question because it's it's you know what you're known for might be a lot different than what internally is the most impactful. What would you say was one of the most impactful early experiences on your bike, whether it be one of the big adventures or, a, you know, a day on the bike that just really like Kate prior to Kate post this thing was was the most different? I mean, part of me wants to say that Great Divide route because it was that first long bikepacking trip. It was the first one. Wow. Totally. And the long, like I rode the Cocapelli in preparation. But I think really when I think about it, like as far as what led me to the path of racing and bikepacking and more backcountry focused riding, like it would actually be this trip that Kurt and I, Kurt Snyder and I took to the Alps in 2014. And that was, so that would have been two years after I rode the Great Divide route. And I started teaching this geology through bikepacking course with Kurt. So that's how we had gotten to know each other through both teaching at Prescott College because he designed that course. And like at that point, Kurt had been, I mean, he had won the Tour Divide and the Arizona Trail Race like too many times to keep track of. And had, I mean, it was just unreal, like the things that he had done on a bike that were hard. And I was still pretty new to it, but I wasn't new to like hard things. And so we went to Europe with the plan of traversing the Alps on single track. And we were riding, like, what were the bikepacking bikes at the time? Like, we were riding Salsa, El Mariachis, they were Thai, hardtails with 2 by 10 gearing, and no droppers. Like, that's what we rode in 2014, right? And we went self-supported and put together this route that was self-designed with, like, input from a handful of Europeans that we knew. And we set out from Nice, France and rode for a month. And after a month, we finished in Zermatt, which is not all the way across the Alps, but it's 800 miles along our route. And we had climbed over 200,000 feet, which for context is like the elevation gain of the Great Divide route, which is 2,700 miles. Mm-hmm. But in the distance, that was just a little bit longer than the Colorado Trail. <laughs> Or it would be equivalent to like three and a half Colorado trails of climbing oh in the gosh. same distance. So it was, and it was, we spent so much time on trail. I was not the mountain biker skill wise or even like mentally and fitness wise that I am now. And so for me, I think at that point, that was the hardest thing I had ever done and mentally and physically, but it was also so eye opening because I remember like these moments when I was out there and being like, wow, like I'm like, I'm not physically quite as strong as Kurt, but like I can do this and so can he. And if he can do this and I can do this, then what else can I do as a woman in like the ultra endurance bikepacking world? And I think that it just gave me this level of confidence to go pursue these other trips around the world and then also start racing as I, at that point hadn't considered racing. I was like, not, didn't feel very competitive, generally preferred just personal challenges. But I saw, I think that trip sparked that curiosity in my mind that led to being curious about what was possible for me personally. And also having the confidence when those challenges came down the road, be like, well, I did this other thing. And that was really hard. And Kurt, like Kurt and I are like actually pretty equal in many ways. And if that's the case, then like, I should believe in myself to tackle these other challenges like racing or bikepacking in a more foreign landscape or starting a a nonprofit or recovering from a car accident. Like all those like turned into this like, whoa, okay, like the mountains give us this context and perspective of like kind of the uncertainty and adversity that we can overcome. I can do hard things. Yeah, totally. <laughs> what, were you competitive as, you know, growing up before this, raced at all in other ways, or, or did it kind of, did that really spark competitive nature in you? I mean, I grew up running indoor track because I grew up in the Northeast where winters are dark and cold. So we have an indoor track season and I ran the mile. And again, like, I think for me, it was about like, how good can I do? Like I my highlight in indoor track was like, I ran 
a sub six minute mile. And it didn't matter to me like what place I finished in doing that. Like I just had really, all I wanted in high school competitively was to finish and under that time. And like the other girls out there were like inspiration and motivation. And then I also grew up competing horses. And again, it was just kind of like, what kind of performance can I put together? And so I think, I don't know where that came from. Like, I think my parents never really pushed the, like, you have to win or or to be successful. It was, I think it was just more like, do your best. And that very much has translated into how I raise spikes of like, and sometimes it's to a fault where I'm like, I don't really care if I'm getting dropped or like if a gap is growing, like I don't have that drive to like beat the person in front of me. Like I just want to get the most out of myself. And in ultra racing, that turned in also wanting to, like, thinking that that could be something that would set a high bar for others to strive towards. That high bar for you was uh, was winning, you know, a lot of the yeah. time. So, <laughs> it's like, whoa, okay, all right. Yeah, that's pretty sweet. All right, another question. We actually just uh, interviewed Kurt. The episode isn't out yet. <laughs> How is he as a professor? Because we didn't dive into that a whole lot in his story. Oh, funny. Well... Let's see. I never witnessed him teach in a classroom. Like at Prescott College, a lot of courses are field-based. And so I co-taught this geology through bikepacking course. And my we had very distinct roles. My role was to facilitate and teach the adventure education curriculum. Like we were bikepacking with students. Oh, wow. And so I was responsible for risk management and the leadership of like the expedition element of it. And he traveled with his kind of geology curriculum and taught geology along the way. And then, but, and I think students are the best gauge of how good an instructor is. And if that is the case, then it seems like he was a fantastic geology professor because he had so many students leave Prescott College inspired by Kurt and with the knowledge and skills to go into geology or earth sciences in their, in a postgraduate way, or just like into their work life. and. And just like have continued to be lifelong learners. And like I have a number of, we have a number of former students who like since graduating have just like seems to have retained that love and curiosity for like how the landscapes are formed and like the history and like the content, which I think understanding that gives you context for what makes a place special. Mm -hmm. And so whether or not students retain like the technical specific, like, numbers of years or succession of landforms like that curiosity and the skills to like figure out what has happened in a place that's what they seem to walk away with which is a pretty lifelong skill you get someone like that who's passionate about geology taking you somewhere it, it unlocks this just endless depth of information and understanding. And yeah, you, the more you understand about a place, the more you're going to appreciate it. You might not, it might not be your number one passion, but you know, for instance, baseball is often considered a, a boring sport. Get someone to explain the game within the game to you. And you'll say, I had no idea any of that was even going on on the surface. I mean, get a biologist out to a, you know, a tidal pool or get someone, anything, any culture, any, any aspect of anything if, you're, if something isn't curious to you, but lots of people seem to enjoy it, it's probably just a level of understanding you don't have yet. And I guarantee doesn't look like much on the surface, but there's a lot going on, a lot going on. So what led to the decision to leave education? Or I, I wouldn't say you've left education, but to leave that role specifically. Was it wanting to move deeper into the mountains where you are now and do, do these experiences? What would you say led to that. Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. Cold turkey is great on sandwich, but it's not always the best approach when it comes to breaking habits. I'm not talking about any magic here. I'm talking about our newest sponsor, Fume. They took a look at a problem in a different way. Not everything in a bad habit is wrong. So instead of a crazy change, why not remove the bad out of the habit? Fume is an innovative, award-winning flavored air device that does just that. So instead of vapor, Fume uses flavored air. Instead of harmful chemicals, Fume uses delicious flavors. And instead of electronics, Fume is completely natural. No batteries, no electricity. 
I've been using my Fume. It's a, it's, a, it's a really cool handheld device that you put this little core in and you can breathe air and it's just like a, you know, similar, it's just something to do that can kind of distract you if you are used to having something else in your hand that you, you know, that might not be as good for you. It's really cool. There's no gimmick. There's no trick to it. It's just a, a really cool tool that helps, uh, you know, breathe some some flavored air in while you drive or while you're hanging out at the office. There's no smoke. There's no anything. Uh, if you know anybody in your life trying to break a bad habit, maybe Fume is going to be that answer for them. It's helped hundreds of thousands of people so far. And if you want to give it a shot and learn more, maybe you're still a little confused, head to tryfume.com slash adventure and use the code adventure to save 10% off your order. That's tryfume.com slash adventure and use the code adventure to save an additional 10% off. Give it a shot. Thank you, Fume, for sponsoring the show. I am a proud user of Manscaped. They are the revolutionary hair trimmer that a lot of men use. And our friends over at Menscape have been working night and day to bring you below-the-waist grooming experience like none other with their brand new Lawnmower 5.0 Ultra. It's the next generation of trimmer with interchangeable blade heads for whatever shave your mind can imagine. Is it the biggest technological advancement of all time? I think it is. And that's why you need to get it and upgrade your grooming game to the Ultra Sphere this year by going to manscaped.com for 20% off, plus free shipping with the code ADVENTURE at checkout. You can take it on the go. This puppy comes with a travel case, travel lock feature to avoid accidentally powering on or off. It's actually really handy. One of my headlamps just died the other night because it turned on by itself in my backpack. And speaking of lights, it has dual LED spotlights just like your regular lawnmower. So like I said, get 20% off plush free shipping with the code ADVENTURE at manscaped.com. It's very high tech for very low places. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. It was a number of things as many big life decisions formed based on like a number of different things coming to head. One was that this point in 2017 and 2018, like I had been based in Prescott since I was an undergraduate student. And so it'd been like 12 years there. And like, I went there for college and then I kind of stayed for the community and the teaching and opportunity. And I just really missed winter and big mountains. And so I think part of me just like wanted a change of scenery. Like I had that feeling of like, you know, I, there's so much that's great that's going on here. I could see myself in this job and in this place forever. And like, I'm always going to wonder like, what was it, what would have happened if I did this? And I think that that question, when I've been in that place, like not exploring it has just led to not feeling quite satisfied and exploring that. At least you get an answer, even if it doesn't work out, you know, and I was like 31 or 30 or something. So like, not very much to lose by like moving and trying something different. Another with the teaching part was just like, I was working full time for Prescott college that looked like teaching six to seven field courses a year, which looked like one full semester being completely in the field. And that's like away from town, like on multiple week to three week long trips all semester with pretty quick transitions in between. And then in the spring or the other semester, I'd teach three of, out of four of those. And so it was just a lot of field time and it's hard to kind of pursue any of your own life in that, whether it's a relationship or just like feeling grounded in your community or bike racing. And so I was doing that while also working on a master's degree and also starting to race at a professional level. And it was just too much. Like when I look back on it now, I'm like, I don't know how I did that. And I know that like people who are parents and in grads in school at the same time and hold full-time jobs, that's probably harder. But I think that I have like the next level down of like full-time field work, master's program and racing ultra races professionally, you know, where you're like exhausted and they take a lot of time. (laughs) Yeah. I was going to say, they're not like, you know, six hour events or multi-day yeah, <laughs> totally and like at that point Kurt and I had the concept of bikepacking routes and we're trying to get that off the ground as a nonprofit as well and so it just felt like it was time for me to try to do 
a fewer things and do them better. And I'd been teaching in the field for so long. And I was like, you know, I can come back to this if I want to. And I think a break, I will be a better instructor. Like I was starting to feel burnt out. I will be a better instructor if I come back more fresh. And I'm curious what would happen if I tried to make the, not even bike racing, but just bikes more of a professional endeavor for me and try to do my best to contribute to bikepacking roots, becoming a successful nonprofit. And my plan was to work more contract-based field courses along the way. Cause like at that point I wasn't making very much money through sponsorship. So I was like, well, I'll keep working in the field. But then I was in the car accident and that completely changed things. As, as it <laughs> tends to do. Yeah. Gosh. Yeah. Um, I want to dive into that, yeah, but, but I do want to ask yeah. first, can you tell us totally. what is bikepacking roots? Like what, what is the mission there? Uh, and cause this, that, that preceded this, this at least starting it preceded the car accident. Yeah, totally. So bikepacking roots is a 501 C3 nonprofit that Kurt Refsnyder and I founded with a, initial founding board of about six board members. We launched in 2017. So I guess this is year six of being officially a nonprofit. Our mission is to support and advance bikepacking, the growth of a diverse bikepacking community, and access to and the conservation of the landscapes and public lands through which we ride. I love it. And that's more or less word for word been what our mission has been since we launched that's kind of threefold as far as how we do that. We design routes that are well-researched, intentional, and sustainable with the goal of those routes setting bikepackers up for incredible life-changing experiences through bikepacking. We try to lower the barriers to bikepacking through building intentional community, providing a lot of educational resources, and through a blossoming grants program for the BIPOC bike adventure grant. I think bikepacking is so young. When we started bikepacking routes, just like six or seven years ago, bikepacking as a sport was in a different place than it is now. Like it has grown exponentially in a very short amount of time. And if you look, zoom out even a little bit more just in the last 10 years, like 10 years ago, maybe we could stretch it to 12. Like there's one website dedicated to bikepacking. Yeah. Bikepacking.com. <laughs> Dot net or dot net before oh, yeah, yeah before wow. bikepacking.com and then bikepacking.com launched and the bikepackers magazine which merged then with bikepacking.com later and initially before you know those websites were really a lot more established like people were finding bikepacking through the races or through road touring and the adventure cycling association and we just thought that there was a lot of opportunity to expand how people find bikepacking and get into it and feel a part of the community. And that would actually also reflect kind of the ethos that people carry as bikepackers. Like we thought that there was a lot of opportunity for people to approach bikepacking as a way to connect to the landscape and to connect to the communities that they're riding through and like ultimately become stewards of those places and allies of those communities rather than necessarily just like someone who's quickly passing through us and their goal to get to a finish line. Did you see it going that direction or did you see it maybe having the potential to? More the potential to like, there were a couple instances that really got us first talking about what led to the idea of bikepacking routes. And one of those was this race in Oregon. Now I'm completely blanking on the name of what that race was, but they there were just this, these reports afterwards of people like sleeping, bikepacking racers sleeping in these private barns of farmers, like without permission and then like pooping in them and like leaving trash like in at gas stations and grocery stores, just like out where they're resupplying. Like it was just that like, I am here to go as fast as possible. It doesn't matter. Rules don't apply to me or like being a steward doesn't apply to me because of this, you know, like bigger goal, that was just one instance. But I think through that, we're like, wow, like what about trying to promote traveling with the goal of like being a part of this landscape in a positive way and like being 
the sort of person and like bike packers being the sort of user group that land managers are like, oh, I ran into someone bike packing. Yeah, They're awesome. I want, I want them on my totally. land. Because like I think we were seeing bikepacking routes being published, routes being published that cross private land and these races have a history of being very grassroots and underground and unpermitted, which can be legal. And then depending on how it's orchestrated can also be technically illegal. And so we were just like, this is growing. The more people are doing this, the more important it is that they're just doing it in a way that like landowners, land managers, community members are all seeing bikepacking as like a really positive thing for their communities so that ultimately like, and now we're in this place. So that's what's crazy is that there are towns and communities who want to bring bikepacking there because it has become such a positive thing for tourism. And that's awesome. And I would not attribute that solely to bikepacking routes, but I think we've had a small part in it, you know. Sports, we can point to a number of sports where culturally they have shifted to where it's not, there's not a lot of people don't love them coming into the their space right. necessarily. And uh, I, I would, it would be tragic if that happened to bikepacking. Uh, and so, yeah, y- y'all setting the tone and kind of setting, hey, here's what a bike packer should, here's some values that, that we need to carry into any space. Personally, I find myself, and I talk about it a lot on the show, anywhere I adventure now, which is mostly paddling, um, pedal and paddle, I can't help but like think about how this land come to be in the sense of being protected because a lot of adventures happen on protected land. Mm-hmm through national parks, state parks, national forests, whatever it is, usually some sort of conservation area, those don't just happen. So how do we use these sports we love to make sure these places exist? So I love that it's a connection and protection to the land. Why are you, why do you value that? Did you start seeing that? Because we still run into plenty of adventures that don't give a damn about that side of things. What about it to you? Did it start to click for you? Like, not only are you having these awesome experiences, but like, whoa, these kinds of places don't just happen. It takes people intentionally doing this work. The way I got there isn't doesn't necessarily look like how I'm trying to facilitate people to get there through bikepacking routes or through my own mission, but it just happened mostly through teaching adventure education and spending so much time in those public lands. Like that is, at least especially in the Western U.S., like if you're going out on any, like on trails, rivers, into the mountains, across deserts, like you're most likely traveling and recreating on federally managed public land. I know in the East, there's a lot more state managed lands and even just like public or private landowners granting access and easements because they recognize the value of those opportunities and are hopefully rewarded through tax deductions. (laughs) But understanding just that like those experiences that I was having that had not only shaped so much of like my adult life's experiences, but also just like where I was spending my time. Like I ended up teaching probably a little over 200 weeks in the field. And that's like 200 weeks of like sleeping on the ground on federally managed public lands primarily. And that's like, that's what afforded me so many of the you know, like character building opportunities and development of a variety of different skills from technical skills to human skills, to leadership skills, like to educational skills, like that all happened for me out there. And then like every race that I was participating in was happening on public lands and like what came from those races, whether it was again, those like intrinsic values and experiences to the extrinsic of like, I have a job (laughs) Um, or like, these are where my my best friendships were formed or like my husband, I met working on a salmon river course, like in one of the largest wilderness areas um, in the United States. And like just having that awareness through one, having to know on the first place, like just what land you're on and who manages it. And then also a bit more of the context of that. Like, I think something that I've been thinking a lot of more about in maybe the last like five or six years is like the context of how federal land came to be and how that's mostly unceded territory from indigenous people and like what is the way forward 
for us in 2023 because like we have a system now that is formed on like some fundamentally broken and principles. And so what are ways that we can move forward to like ultimately as humanity be stewards of this landscape that like provides us clean air and clean water, um, which is necessary for all humans, but then also these amazing adventure experiences. And I don't necessarily have the right answer except to like continue to support land management for um, the preservation of those things and including indigenous leadership in the decision-making. And so that's my personal stance now, but yeah, that I think just that piece of like knowing where you are (laughs) and why it is that way. Like it's such a basic question, but it's sometimes really easy to not know or to just ignore because like, in a way public lands are so accessible that it's can be really easy to just like take it for granted. You know, like you might see like a sign that's like entering the Bridger Teton national forest and like it's on the side of the road and like, there's no gate there's, you don't have to pay. And that's part of what makes it amazing, but it's mostly like the national parks and state parks that people associate with, with being, protected because you actually have to stop and pay someone. Well, ideally, you know, sometimes <laughs> bike packers sometimes don't. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, I mean, and that's totally, and that's like part of the thing that that's we were like, cool, we need like bike packers to like be the people that <laughs> rangers aren't just like, we, I saw a bike packer, they're doing something wrong. Yes, that's just, <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, always keep your eye out for those bike packers. They're, right. <laughs> they're pooping in barns all over the place. Um <laughs> They just they aim for them. No, yeah, uh, whoever did that, <laughs> they've been talked about. Smells like a bike packer. No, I encourage anyone, whatever land you love, find out how it came to be. Because I guarantee, more often than not, there's a very interesting story there where the land, by the skin of its teeth, became protected. You know, as far as through conservation in our current government system, yes, it was probably stolen at some point too. But the reason it is not, you know, covered in pavement or covered in a mining operation is oftentimes someone who cared about it, the leg- the owner having wanting a legacy and saying, you know, my my parents are buried on this land. My, you know what I mean? I I can't let it become this other thing. Or oftentimes it's through just someone taking some sort of action in some way. And so it's great that we are able to enjoy places like national parks and whatnot, but there's so much of it that's still on the chopping block that I encourage people when you realize how some of this comes to be, you can start to see, oh, wow, the rest of this land that isn't necessarily protected could be if I take action, if I do something, if I start talking about it even and start using it, if it's accessible, that is. And so, I don't know, I just encourage people, this stuff doesn't just come to be. It is usually a community and a person and, and, and people finding something or it gets on the chopping block, gets put in the spotlight and it can go one way or the other. And it ends up a lot, sometimes going the right way. Totally. I think just being tapped into what's going on, like there's, I mean, our government in the U.S. is like very large and can be very hard to navigate like decisions that are being made. But if we want to continue to have the experiences we're having, like we have to be paying attention. And that is one of the things that at Bikepacking Roots we're trying to do is to just like help people sift through like all the noise of day-to-day news and to be able to be like, hey, like here's an issue. This could impact you as a bikepacker. Like here's how you could participate. And and at least that way, like if something you care about is bikepacking, then we're trying to help make a difference for how you're able to use your voice to continue to make these experiences possible. And if you're a climber or a paddler or a backcountry skier, like there are organizations out there for all those sports who are those kind of watchdogs in a way and helping you understand how you can help advocate for that type of recreation. And that was one of the things with bikepacking roots was like, there wasn't an organization dedicated to that for bikepacking yet. We have IMBA for mountain biking, people on bikes for just like bike uh, advocacy. They do a ton of amazing legislative work and adventure cycling association for road touring. And so, 
by Kraken Roots was that kind of final, well, maybe not final, but next link. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> link final. in the chain. That's awesome. And, I, and yeah. I'll tell people too, you know, when it comes to that stuff, like you're saying, things being complex, I think Steve Jobs said it, like the world is more or less run by people as smart as you and me. Like it's not, I mean, there's geniuses for sure out there and there's people with terrible intentions, but more or less, the people in charge are just like you and me. That is a really good point. And, you know, the more I dive into anything, the more I realize, holy cow, that, you know, there's one decision maker here or three and they're all humans. You know, they all have motivations. They all have emotions. They all have things they care about outside of this. So when you start to realize that it becomes less scary. And two, the world is changed by people that show up. You know, the person that doesn't send that email never gets heard. The person that doesn't go to that meeting. And you would be very surprised by how few people do show up to things you think people do and how much just sharing your opinion can actually change things. I've seen it firsthand recently. Yeah, it's like participation is actually most of it. Yeah, (laughs) And the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Mm -hmm. And that's like with land managers, it's so true. Like you can't pay land managers to listen to you, but you can be like right in their ear. And then, and yeah, and and then organizations that are well-funded are able to put more people out there to be more of squeaky wheels. So. Yeah, uh, I did not see our conversation jumping in all this. This is a very exciting. <laughs> I'm, I'm great. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the listeners are probably like, like, get back to the adventure. But no, this is this is all part of it. I do want to ask, what happened with the accident? Are we able to dive into that? Totally. Just because that's like the thing that brings the real world in life, mm-hmm. no pun intended, crashing back in <laughs> is, is yeah. boom, this happens. What happened? Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. At the end of 2017, I decided to quit my job at Prescott College. I was right about to finish my thesis for my master's, and I was moving to the Tetons in the summer of 2018. And I had pretty big goals on the bike. My plan was to uh, win and set a record at the 24 Hours of Old Pueblo, which is a race I had been trying. I had one, but had been trying to set a record for a number of years and had kept coming up short to win and set a record in the Arizona Trail 300 race, which, again, I had won, but and been trying to set the record a number of times and it continued to come up short. Those were kind of my two race goals. And I managed both of those races are in the winter and spring. That's a great time of year to ride in Arizona. Um, and so I achieved that at old Pueblo. I raced and did 18 laps, which is about 300 miles and 24 hours on your mountain bike and set a course record in doing that. The about eight weeks later, I set a record in the Arizona trail 300, which took 11 hours off the women's record. And my time was just two hours behind the three fastest men's times ever. Wow. And I was the fourth fastest time. And which like two hours in a 51 hour race is like, it feels like minutes, you know, you're like, oh, I can do better. I know I I know how to take those two hours off after you do that. Because the cool thing about racing is like, it's, you don't really get perfect races. Like over that amount of time, it's really easy to keep finding ways to get better. Everybody's had a few things that didn't go right. Totally. The, even the FKT. Yeah. And they, and they add up and that's, what's Mm -hmm. cool, you know? And and I think the other cool thing about these races is like, we're all human and like, none of us are superhuman. I don't believe I'm any particularly, I don't believe I'm especially gifted. I don't believe Kurt is especially gifted. I don't believe Will Wilcox is especially gifted and we're friends and I can say Mm -hmm. that. Like, I think that we just have had the opportunity, like the privilege to try really hard and then have like, figured out what we need to do to get the best out of ourselves. I'll tell Lail because she's supposed to come on soon. So, so Kate Boyle said, you're not particularly gifted. What do you have <laughs> yeah. to say about that? She's amazing. And she's very <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. strong. I know what you mean. Yeah, it, you're right. Body. But what I'm saying is that like these times that we have put out there, like other people can do them and they should be inspiration, not intimidation. You know, mm-hmm. through Old Pueblo, I got invited to go race to the 
the 24 hour world championships. Cause old Pueblo is basically like the it, Well, it's just the biggest 24 hour race in North America. And so that was kind of my performance there put me on the radar for the world championships organizer. And so I was invited over to Scotland and went over and raced in Scotland in October of 2018. And I won that race, which the cool thing was that that was one part physical, but it was hugely just mental and tactical because it was 50 degrees and raining the entire time. And to rate, to perform well in like arguably some of the shittiest conditions. I mean, that's just like when you get hypothermic, it was like maybe like 40 to 50 degrees. It's just like self-care. And that's a lot of what adventuring in the mountains is. And so I did that at the end of October and after this incredible year, like a year that you would never expect to be able to have, having met all these goals and just kind of like launching myself into this next level as far as racing goes, was like ready to go, set an overall record in the Arizona Trail 300, ready to go, Yep. set an overall record in the Colorado Trail Race. I was like, okay, I am going to be able to be the one with Lil who's like showing the world that like women can compete are as strong as men in ultra racing. I was spending the winter up in, or some of the winter up in the Tetons to make some money working in the field. And on Christmas Eve, I was just leaving the grocery store to drive down to the house. I was in the cat I was taking care of for a friend. And as I was driving along the back two wheels of my truck slid out on black ice and I just lost control of my truck at about 40 miles an hour and was just fishtailing through the road. And as I was correcting it and sliding back into my lane, the oncoming car, which had swerved to initially avoid my trajectory, just T-boned me in my driver's side door at about 50 miles an hour. And I came to a stop and realized that, well, I was fully conscious, but I realized that my, I could not feel anything from my waist down, which is a telltale sign of um, being paralyzed. And so in that moment, I was like, whoa, I have two options right now. (laughs) One is to freak out because I could be paralyzed and I'm in a lot of pain and this is really scary. And the other option is to do everything that I learned. I've learned through bikepacking and ultra racing, like in challenging moments in the face of adversity. And that's just like focus on my breath and to just focus or to focus on what I can control. And in that moment in the truck, the only thing I could control was breathing. I was like, oh, I'm breathing. And if I get out of this truck and learn that I'm ever going to be able to walk again, let alone ride a bike, let alone race a bike, like I am going to make sure that the rest of the days that I do live, like doing those things are just with the intent of having the most positive impact that I can have and to never take the opportunity to move outside in wild places for granted. Were you thinking all that right then? Yeah. No, in that moment, I was like, that (laughs) is my commitment. (laughs) And like, I had to think about something is I was stuck in my truck for four hours and then they had to like use the jaws of life to get me out. And I went to- You were conscious. Yeah, I was conscious. Couldn't move. Could not move. Like was frozen still. I was like, the steering console was crushed up against my knees. And so I was like, truly just stuck. (laughs) And like with the injuries that I had, I just was not able to move anything. My arms were fine. So I could like move those, but I I was able to get like a paramedic crawled through the broken window. She was very small. She was like my five, two of my size. And she crawled through the broken window and sat on the bench seat with me and like hooked me up to morphine until they could like tear the truck apart around me to get me out. And I went to the hospital that night and this is Christmas Eve, you know, you're like, Oh my God. (laughs) And my family was in the Northeast and my boyfriend, Will, was in the Southeast with his family. And I was going to go to a potluck with some friends. And I just was like, and my phone had just like flown out the window. And the crazy thing through all of this, I think one of the craziest things that night was that when my truck came to a stop, there were people who were behind us who had stopped and like ran onto the scene to help. And the first two were two of my former Prescott College students who were both wilderness first aid responders Whoa. and had no idea that it was me. They didn't know the truck I was in at that point. 
they were visiting. Like, I didn't know they, they didn't live there. They were just like passing through, had skied at Targhee and were like going over to Jackson for Christmas dinner with some family. And they're the first ones to come up to me to see if I was alive. That is crazy. It was crazy. Like, it gives me chills. You're too. like, am I in heaven or something? Totally. Like, no, it, that is, was is, the moment where I was like, <laughs> did I, I hurt my head? I'm, I think I'm done. Yeah. Is <laughs> it real? That's not Alex and Julie. <laughs> but it was. Oh, my gosh. And so then I was taken to the, the hospital in Driggs, which then pretty quickly they're like, oh, you're really hurt. You need to go to, the, like, the trauma center over in Idaho Falls. But, you know, it's snowing too much to helicopter you over. So you're going in the ambulance. And it just took what felt like forever. But by at some point on late on Christmas Eve, I had um, I learned that I had a shattered pelvis and sacrum um, and a ruptured bladder. And the ruptured bladder was a kind of big deal because it's an organ. Yeah. <laughs> when you have like urine moving through your body, there's a lot of risk for infection. And so they did an emergency surgery on my abdomen that night to fix the bladder. Ironically, they didn't actually have to do anything to the bladder, but they cut me open and the <laughs> trauma surgeon was very proud of himself when he told me this the next day. He's like, I took out every organ injected for you. <laughs> like, oh, <laughs> wow. Oh my gosh. He pulled it out. I've never it. heard like, that. How they do it. <laughs> but I got stitched back up. And then the next day on Christmas day, my parents arrived and my boyfriend arrived and my orthopedic surgeon i met him for the first time lance and he was like great news you're gonna have a full recovery we have a plan for how we're gonna like heal your pelvis and your sacrum by the way you have a broken fibula too (laughs) but that's not a big deal and it's just gonna take some time and so i ended up having surgery about three or four days later um they just wanted time for like the urine to clean out to reduce the risk of bone infection and I got an external fixator, which looks like a towel rack being screwed into the outside of your pelvis, but it goes like through your skin into your bones um, to clamp everything together. Because if you think of a circle that's broken in four places, like how do you keep that healing in the right position? And that's like my pelvic ring. And so that was just clamped by this external fixator. And then I got two long screws that are, I don't know, four inches long that are went through my sacrum and those are still there today, but the external fixator I had for 12 weeks and I was in a wheelchair for about half of that. And the bladder healed. And the amazing thing is I was able to get on a bike with the external fixator on a trainer and just like turn my legs in circle. And my surgeon Lance was like, sure, you can do that if you want. No one's ever wanted to do that, but if you can tolerate it, you can do that. And I honestly believe that doing that, like the bike is actually like sitting on a stationary bike on a trainer inside a house and just turning my legs at like zero watts. But while otherwise being stuck in a sitting or laying down on my back position in a wheelchair is what led to such a successful recovery because it was the only way to get blood moving through my body. And then it also fed that mental element of like, wow, I'm like, I'm on my bike. (laughs) If I can do this with an external fixator and a broken pelvis, like I can, or peeling pelvis, like I'm going to be able to ride outside again. I mean, you were confident in that even at that time. When when were you able to express that confidence? Mm, I mean, I think pretty quickly, like I had, my surgeon was amazing. (laughs) I think I presented a new challenge for him. And because I think most people who have broken pelvises, or at least he told me, most people who have broken pelvises in Idaho Falls are in like farming accidents or like motor, like motorized sports accidents, like dirt bikes. One of the first things I asked him on Christmas day was like, I want to go win the 24 hour world championships again. Can I do that? And he was like, uh, I don't see why not. (laughs) And he was like, yeah, seriously. And he's like, you're going to have like, your body will be different and you're going to have like connective tissue around your pelvis. That's always going to be, feel a little different. And that could be a problem for you. But he was like, yeah, I don't see why not. And so he gave me this confidence. And then my physical therapist, Kelly 
is amazing. And I just happened to end up in the hands of one of the few physical therapists who's double board certified in orthopedics and pelvic floor health. And I didn't even know that pelvic floor health was something to be certified how, how in. You, how do you, yeah, how do you? I had no idea. And I, I didn't even really know that until like <laughs> months after I worked with her. I just got <laughs> wheeled into her office. Like it was just one of those things in the world. I was like, cool, you're going to, Kelly is going to be one of your guardian angels. <laughs> and she's still, I mean, I texted her like two days ago. I just ended up with this team who gave me the ability to believe those things. And there are no promises, you know, but it was just like, yeah, I don't see why not. Like, it's going to take a lot of work. And so I was like, cool, I know how to work hard. <laughs> and I was lucky enough to have the support of people who are really good at their jobs and were on board to like believe with me. All the thoughts that you had when you were sitting in the truck waiting for the jaws of life to to get you out, did you... Did those thoughts and those resolutions stick? Yeah, that first one of like, wow, like I can only control the controllable. That right now that's my breath. And this, like I was so close to having the ability to move freely with a fully able body taken away from me. And so to spend like, I mean, it wasn't even 24 hours, maybe like 12 hours wondering if I was paralyzed and if I'd ever be able to walk again, like it kind of sticks with you. Like, I feel like I got by with some sort of like Pasco for free card and doctors now, like I still like my body will never be the same. And so I still do things on a day to day and month to month basis that involves working with medical professionals in order to keep my body post car accident, able to operate at a really high level. And they love to remind me, they're like, wow, you really are lucky. You didn't die. Those you, most people would like that usually leads to dying. And so like, I'm continually reminded of how serious that car accident was and how lucky I was that it was just my pelvis <laughs> and that I had such a good surgeon and such amazing physical therapist. And this is another case just for exercising, but like I was so strong and fit when I got in that car accident. And they think that that had a lot to do with why I healed so well and so quickly. Like, I mean, I was for how serious my, my injuries were like, the fact that I was back on a bike and riding outside like 14 weeks afterwards, like on pavement, you know, very controlled environment, but like I was doing it, you know, it was pretty phenomenal to people. And so I think it's just that at times I, you know, can be in like a normal head state base of like, Oh, this is just like going out for a ride. Like it's work, you know? And then, but it's so easy to snap out of that and be like, wow, I'm so lucky. Like, I can't believe I still get to do this and just feeling inspired and like really anchored to feeling like I have a commitment to like do the most with that. You have to fight bitterness. For me, it's not bitterness. I think sometimes I feel like it's sometimes it's easy to feel disappointed or sad. Like, so I ultimately after the car accident went and raced the Cocopelli trail, which is 130 miles and set a fastest known time on that which took about 13 hours. And that to me, that was like the first like ultra back. And I was like, okay, I'm on track to racing these longer races. And then last year, this is partly slow because of the pandemic, but last year I went back to 24 hour worlds for the first time. And after 12 hours, for some reason, I could not stand on my right leg. Like there was just this shooting pain and I could not walk, let alone ride. And my feet, physical therapist Kelly was there with me in Italy and she looked at went through everything she's like we're you're not getting back on your bike like this is not good for your body and I knew it you know I just needed someone to tell me and say it out loud and my husband was there who was the boyfriend in the initial part of the car accident and he was like I want to be able to ski and bike with you when we're 70 like this isn't worth it and so I have ultimately retired from altering, which has created space for new ways to focus my energy outside. And that's where like when like the Arizona Trail Race starts like last week, it's easy to look at track leaders and be like, oh, I wish I was there. What could I be doing, you know, if I was there? But at the same time, I think I just when it's I have the moment of like, oh, I miss that, like. I need to remember that I, there's so much you can do with your body outside in whatever it's capable of 
that focusing on what I can do and what I do get to do is a lot more powerful than like what I can't do. Oh, that's a great perspective. Gosh, I, we probably should wrap up here in just a few <laughs> minutes. Sorry. No, it's okay. How do you think this makes you better as a human? You know, besides all the perspective shifting, it sounds like, because I'll say, you know, a lot of the stories we've interviewed people for on this show, the reason they did that thing was because they had an injury that changed their trajectory maybe 10 years ago. Or, or we, I remember one, I think the first woman to paddle the Nile River source to see we had on that she was equestrian fanatic and fell off a horse, broke her back. But for some reason, paddling was okay. And she's like, I would have never done this had that injury not happened. Do you, do you see your future that way? Like it's, you know, I'm never going to, there's all this stuff I'm going to do that I never would have done had I not been in an accident. That's an interesting, really interesting question. Like on one hand, yes, as far as biking goes, I think that has led to just much more of a focus on the place and less of a focus on the performance. Like I can still race at a real and perform at a high level. But I think what I've realized is like, that is so special. And like in reflecting, like in those days in the hospital, like what have been the most meaningful experiences they've always been in wild places and in big landscapes. And so just being able to go there feels more like what is motivating me now, rather than being able to be the best in the world at something like I'm not trying to be the best in the world in anything now. <laughs> and there's a pretty big sense. There's kind of a lot of pressure taken off from that. And part of that, and that is connected to this other element that might not be maybe what you're expecting, but like, I think at least for me, like there to be the best at something, like there's kind of a type A personality of like very focused and very driven and the car accident while I had to be certainly focused and driven to heal, like it forced me to really slow down, like in like literally stop. Like there were, I had a number of weeks in a wheelchair where I was like, I was not moving anywhere. And that doing that, like in the winter when it was like snowing every day and was very limited by where I could go in part because of the weather and the other part being the wheelchair and just like having that time healing with my, with Will and with my mom, like, and then being supported and like lifted up by the community here, that has changed how I just kind of view like relationships and community because like the landscape is one thing, but a lot of what we, how we draw value as humans, I think is like, we are social people. And so it's like the connections to the people that we share those experiences with. I think very much strengthens our sense of self and our connection to ourself and those wild non-human places. And so I think post accident, like I think a lot about like how to fill, like fill my cup and keep my soul burning with like adventures outside. But there's a huge part now too of my time and energy that's dedicated to like just really appreciating the people in my life and the place that I get to call home. And, and that's like the community of where I live in Victor, but then also the community that I left in Prescott and like, cause ultimately when things are hard, those are the people who will show up and support you and that you get to support and like in their challenges. And I think that's like a pretty big revelation for me. It's just like that ability to like slow down and rest and like be still and be in one place and really, and focus on people, relationships and community. You know, you don't have to be forced in that situation, being pinned to a steering column and former <laughs> students totally. coming up to you and be like, oh my gosh, yes. I haven't seen you in a while. Um, <laughs> I probably was like, how are you? <laughs> how are you? I'm, I'm, I'm okay. I was okay yeah. until, you know, this, but uh, we'll see <laughs> about the future. <laughs> Can you call my mom? And tell her, uh, you know, uh, yeah. the, the most heartfelt thing I've ever told anybody. Yeah, that's uh, what a crazy circumstance. Well, Kate, I'm really excited to see, you know, how this continues to shape you and how you continue to shape this sport that, you know, has been a huge 
probably a big reason I'm talking to you right now is why I got in an adventure in the first place is on a bike. And I'm excited to see what y'all do and and how you're doing it. And uh, where would you like to point folks? Would it be either following you or bikepackingroots.org? What, what would be the most important message you want to leave people with? If they want to keep up with me, they can follow me on Instagram or I have a newsletter that I send out, which you can sign up through my website, which is imkate.com. Or with bikepacking roots and the work we're doing for bikepacking, we have a new ED as of this spring, Noelle. She is amazing and is really just like taking bikepacking roots by the reins and very quickly expanding our reach and our capacity. It's pretty inspiring to watch. And so you can keep up with us over at bikepacking roots, which is R-O-O-T-S dot org. Being a member is free and helps us in numbers. And we also have annual membership drives because financially supporting members do make a lot of our work possible. And you can also keep up with bikepacking roots on Instagram, which is just bikepacking roots. First of all, Thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun. <laughs>